Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Oshman family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Oshman family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 209. Wait, soft matzah? Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rothberg. And today we're starting a new series of episodes for the lead-up to Passover. If you've been listening to Judaism Unbound for a while, you know that we're really interested in this idea of the reinvention, the reimagination of Judaism. And we think that's going to happen not so much from some genius coming and telling us the ideas for a brand new way to do Passover, but more from the accumulation of lots of small ideas that people are going to be experimenting with in their homes. Our conversation a few months ago with Tiffany Schlein about her family's particular practice for Shabbat without screens is an example of that. It's just one idea that we imagine a world where there are thousands of Tiffany Schleins, all of whom are playing around with different ideas and then trading them with one another and talking about them and sharing them here on the podcast. And over time, there'll be a a more generative, creative environment for new Jewish practices that really accord with what we're trying to achieve in our lives. And today we're excited to start that exploration with a fascinating interview about a soft matzah factory that's using all of its profits to fight human trafficking. We're going to talk about that in just a minute, but first we wanted to give a quick report on our Kickstarter campaign, which we've been talking about over the last four weeks. And we're so excited to report that we did it. The Kickstarter campaign closed. We not only raised our original goal, but we almost doubled it which is going to allow us to create a longer book, a more interesting book, a more beautiful book, and a more useful book. So we're really excited to get that book into everybody's hands, and we are so grateful to the well over 200 people who supported this project. Thank you so much. Those folks are going to get their names in the acknowledgments, but more important than that, we really just want to send our love out to those who supported the campaign and those who meant to but didn't get around to it. We love you too. So now let's get into today's episode. Our guests today are Barry Dollinger and Naomi Bain. They are not only a married couple, but the founders of Mitzvah Matzahs, a nonprofit matzah factory that bakes and sells soft matzah. Did you know that matzah could be soft? Well, Barry is an Orthodox rabbi. Not that we insist on that kind of authority here on Judaism Unbound, but for anybody who's concerned, Barry Dollinger is an Orthodox rabbi who is starting a soft matzah factory. So it's kosher no matter who you are. Anyway, Mitzvah Matzahs is a nonprofit matzah factory that bakes and sells soft matzah, a thicker texture for a thicker ritual, as they say. All profits from the sales of Mitzvah Matzah's soft matzah go to organizations doing the heroic work of fighting human trafficking, which really accords with what Passover and thus matzahs are all about, for obvious reasons, but we'll discuss them in the episode. Mitzvah Matzah's also engages in education about human trafficking to deepen the power of Passover. Barry Dollinger is the rabbi at Congregation Beth Shalom, a modern Orthodox synagogue in Providence, Rhode Island, and he also practices law. By that, we mean not Jewish law, but American law. In addition to that, he is the founder of Lighthouse Kosher, which is a certification organization that certifies restaurants and other such establishments as being kosher. He is also the co-founder of Thrive, a retreat for here and now, and the co-founder of Mitzvah Matzahs. By day, Naomi Bain works as a speech-language pathologist in an elementary school. 
By night, she takes care of her family and bakes soft matzah with Barry and other volunteers in the Mitzvah Matzah's soft matzah factory. Naomi grew up Orthodox with parents who insisted on her being able to read original Jewish texts herself, which she has turned into a passion about using those tools to help instill a spirit of empowerment in others. Barry, Naomi, welcome to Judaism Unbounded. So great to have you. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, here at Judaism Unbound, we really are always about having people feel more, as we've called it, chutzpah, about breaking the rules and coming up with new rules. But my favorite kind of discussion is when we're able to tell people that the rules aren't actually what you think they are. So I'm excited to have an Orthodox rabbi and a whole Orthodox family here to talk about the rules and regulations about matzah, because I think that most of us imagine that matzah is definitionally a crunchy item that is kind of like a cracker, and that's what matzah is. And you have launched a soft matzah factory, which sounds like a contradiction in terms. So could you tell us a little bit about soft matzah and how that's even a thing? I think one great way into this conversation is a debate in the Talmud, where they talk about what happens if you have a bread basket of, of challah, of Jewish bread, and of matzah? And, of course, they've grown mold. And they've grown so much mold, I'm imagining it's green and turning the colors of the rainbow. And you can't tell which is the challah and which is the matzah for Passover. And so do you rely on presumptions? Well, the last thing I put in the basket was matzah, I think. Um, and that whole debate, the debate is really irrelevant, but it highlights... Um, the fact that matzah is in the Torah, lechem oni, the bread of affliction, and it isn't cracker oni, the <laughs> cracker of affliction. And there's something intrinsic about matzah being similar enough to the bread we eat all year, yet different in its density and texture and having not risen. Uh, and the, the cracker is actually a radical distortion of what matzah is supposed to be, namely a slave's bread that hasn't risen. Matzah is sort of the twin sister, as it were, of chametz, which is leavened bread. So matzah has to be made from the same grains, wheat, barley, spelt, oat, or rye, um, but it can't have risen. And there are certain rules that have been put in place in order to ensure that it hasn't risen. For example, it should be made within 18 minutes or the time it takes to walk a, a meal, an ancient equivalent of something like um, a mile. And people often confuse the signs of rising with the definition of rising. So how did we end up with crunchy crackers? It seems that um, people originally made their own matzah at home, following the rules that ensure that it won't rise. But as people increasingly started to buy matzah instead of baking their own, there was a need for machine-made matzah to keep up with a growing demand. And once you move into the realm of industrialized matzah production, you want a shelf-stable product that is easy to ship, that doesn't require refrigeration or freezing. So this need for industrialized matzah produced this cracker because it was shelf-stable, easy to mass-produce, and you know, easy to sell across the country. It's not just that it happened, but Naomi's family of blessed memory are largely the original culprits. So it <laughs> happens to be that my great-great-great-grandfather started the first matzah factory on the Lower East Side in New York um, in 1884. That was the Horowitz-Margaretten Matzah Factory. 
they were shortly followed up in Cincinnati by the Manischewitz Company, which has since bought out the Horowitz Margaret and Company um, and has all since been bought out by Bain Capital. Um, but that is the origin of no, the, no relation. Right. Of no <laughs> relation to me. My last name is Bain. Um, so it's actually really neat for me to be embarking on this journey to bring matzah back to something closer to what it originally was before the industrialization took over. So I think that leads us to a, a lot of other great conversation threads about specifically your organization. So we've got a little bit of the, the context of what matzah is and isn't. I love that. Um, what is mitzvah matzahs? And I guess also what isn't it? What took you from the set of passions that we just heard from you about, ah, matzah is not actually what we think it is. You could have thought that um, as I think there are other Orthodox folks and, and even, uh, you know, Jews people who, who know that matzah is something different from that, but they don't necessarily go and start an organization from that passion or thought of theirs. You did. I'm curious what led you to do that. More than that, you started a project that is not only, look, we make soft matzahs and that is important and good, um, but we make soft matzahs and... We do so for a very particular set of purposes that are geared towards the betterment of our world. So I'd love to hear from both of you about what that process was from, ah, we got this issue with people misunderstanding matzah to we're going to start this organization. For a number of years before this organization even became a thought, uh, Barry had been baking his own matzah at home because of concerns about what matzah is and what matzah is not. And he had always wanted to have a soft matzah at our Seder. So we've been doing that with friends for years. Then fast forward a number of years into our marriage, we were dealing with infertility and struggling with this notion of possibly never having children and kind of feeling down about not having something to do outside of our regular day jobs that was meaningful like many of our friends did. So that was brewing and we were thinking of what we should be doing with our time that was meaningful and looking for a way to contribute to children that exist that might need help. And we had this idea about, hey, we eat matzah, the profits go to support, you know, regular capitalist endeavors, and we want to help kids, and we want people to know about soft matzah, and we could actually combine this because it seems useful. People buy matzah every Seder, people talk about slavery at the Seder, but we kind of don't really know what to do with it. Um, and human trafficking was just kind of developing an awareness at that time um, in the general culture because it was in the news. So we thought this is perfect. You know, people who are trafficked are the modern day slaves. Regular, quote unquote, regular people don't have a way to reach out and help them. But if we use matzah as a vehicle to allow people celebrating Passover and talking about slavery and freedom to reach out and help the modern day slaves, what better purpose could we give to the ritual about that? So that's how that idea popped into our heads. I think it was influenced by a number of sort of things. I had read a Wall Street Journal article about the Bain Capital acquisition of Manischewitz, and it sort of occurred to us not just that like matzah has been sort of corrupted for not a nefarious end, but just the people producing matzah are trying to maximize profit, and not just nonprofit. What would it look like to realign matzah, to, to use nonprofit to free matzah from its enslavement? so to speak, and say, what is matzah for? And let's design everything about this matzah, from the corporate structure to the texture to the flavor to how we do it, 
let's do that in line with the values of matzah. That excites me deeply for a bunch of reasons. One is like what you just modeled is something we want generally. Like we had an episode of our show a while back called What is Judaism For? And one of our calls to folks, and you know, I'll reiterate it now, is like, ask that question. Like, what is X holiday or Y ritual or Z text for? Like, what is it actually doing? As opposed to, well, it exists and we do it every year or every week or whatever it is. Um, matzah, to me, the second you think about it, the second you back up, I mean, I don't want to say that this idea of yours isn't like really beautiful and innovative. It is. But like on some level, what's so great about it is it's so clear. It's like matzah is a food that is mentioned in a Jewish story to remember the fact that we were slaves. And more than that, to help us understand what it could mean to still be slaves or for others to be slaves. And so, like, that's what it's for. So eating matzah is supposed to be that action. You created a project that allows that to be, like, really straightforward for people in a way that I think um, has the potential both to, like, invigorate people's Passover seders and Passover experiences and to, you know, make a substantive contribution to the world. So on that note, I really think it's important to talk about what that contribution is. What Can you talk to us a little more about human trafficking, which is a massive issue that I think sometimes we think is more distant to us than it really is? Um, I'd love to hear about what human trafficking is and also your own personal narrative of, of connection to it. Human trafficking, uh, you know, depending on what estimate or governmental body you go with, maybe it's between 20 million and 40 million people are currently uh, victims of human trafficking in an ongoing way. It's a staggering number. It's almost meaningless. It's, it's so large. Um, as we learned about human trafficking, we came through this process of understanding that it affects uh, some two dozen plus industries. It's really different criminal organized crime industries that exist and that we actually all interact with them in different ways. It's pretty hard to be free and clear of human trafficking. Um, most victims are women and children. Those are the most vulnerable groups and the, the most uh, commonly um, victimized groups. But for example, walk into a, a local nonprofit Jewish institution where everyone's a wonderful person and they have chocolate bars out, you know, to welcome people, a gesture of kindness. And it is a gesture of kindness, but actually many of that, that company is known to use chocolate where it's low bidding for cocoa prices in Ivory Coast has produced a slave market. And so this is produced by slaves, not just produced by slaves. The low cost of the chocolate that we have is specifically because the company is trying to maximize profit and turned a blind eye towards what that would mean when they put out a low price bid in the Ivory Coast. And what that means is someone local is going to be able to take free labor or child labor and make cocoa that we can eat for cheaper than it ought to be. And so if you eat a candy bar, you're a contributor. Um, Right, and so people know there's fair trade chocolate, but I think that, that's just one really common example that isn't seedy, it doesn't involve a massage parlor or sex or anything. That's something most people do is eat chocolate. And, um, and then here we are interacting. You know, if you put out chocolate on Halloween, you might be contributing to a slave market. So I think one of the things we really wanted to do is sort of begin to educate and look at the ways in which we're 
involved with this um, more than might be comfortable. I think it's important to understand what it means when somebody's trafficked. It looks something like there's a ruse that a trafficker will use. They'll come and speak to either the person or the person's parents, perhaps if it's a child, and promise something that seems legitimate, you know, like your kid will come work with me for a few years and earn a lot of money for the family. So there's a ruse that gets someone hooked on some idea or into some situation. And then traffickers are very skilled at then somehow removing people's avenues to their freedom once they're in that situation. For example, a child is working as a slave in the cocoa industry, is now moved away from his or her family and has no way to independently go about reclaiming their freedom and they're dependent upon the trafficker for sustenance. And that's how you end up with a situation of slavery. I was nearly trafficked as a child. Um, my grandmother lives in Israel and when I was young, my parents would send me to Israel in the summertime to go make friends, learn Hebrew, spend time with my grandmother and aunt. And I was flying as an unaccompanied minor with a layover in Heathrow Airport. So I'm in Heathrow Airport in the children's lounge where they have games. I happened to be the only child there at the time and there's a stewardess overseeing. This stranger comes up to the lounge, claims to be my uncle and ready to pick me up and take me. Luckily enough, as a nine-year-old, I had my wits about me. I knew I was wearing a necklace that held my ticket and I showed the stewardess my ticket and said, no, I have to go to Israel. She was confused for a minute because this man was really convincing, but she saw that I was serious about going to Israel and that this man was not my uncle and she called security and he ran. That could have been a really bad situation. When I was little, I thought of that as, oh, I was nearly kidnapped. I didn't realize what the repercussions were, what would have happened after that. But, uh, you know, it really could happen to anyone anywhere. Victims slash survivors are people you could have known. Can you make the connection between what you're doing with the soft matzahs and fighting human trafficking? I mean, what what are I guess there, there's two things. What one can you explain a little bit the business model and how actual I think actual funds are going to fight human trafficking, and and then also can you talk about which I think may be more significant in the sense of ultimately larger the the processes you see it of i think it goes back to lex's question of what judaism is for and i think i'm asking you to talk about what passover is for yeah so i'll talk about the business model first i suppose um it's pretty simple um we make the matzah and we have, we have to do certain things to do that we have to pay the health department you can go to the training course to be food safety service managers and and then we're, we're baking it. To this point, we've used only volunteers. Um, and that's also been one of the remarkable parts of this project has been the outpouring of more than 50 volunteers to come help bake matzah, most of whom we didn't know before we started the project. And then, and then we take the money we get from selling the matzah, and then we subtract the money we spend uh, to make the matzah, and we give the rest of that money to organizations that empower people in the fighting of human trafficking. I think that's the most important piece for us is empowerment um, as a, an institutional value. But so we're, we're giving that money to them to do their work because most people are not going to be able to do the kind of work they're doing because of the specialized knowledge, the mental health training required, the resources, the danger involved. And so this allows people to make a 
collective contribution to action. Um, this links to what you said, Dan. Like, I always feel like the Seder is a very frustrating experience because it has such great potential and the, the lyrics are so grand and inspiring and moving. Um, and then it feels like the action is disconnected or, or awkwardly connected. Like, even if there is an action step, like, oh, and now I should care about these people, but I can't do that at the Seder. Um, and so I'm inspired by the very intro to the Seder where it says, this is the bread of affliction, which our ancestors ate as slaves. And then the very next line is, everyone who's hungry, come and eat. And so it was, can we take this matzah and make it both an inspiration of further action, but also let's just make the act of eating matzah itself a starting action. Uh, let, let's, let's make it really easy. By eating matzah, which you're doing already, if you're at a Seder probably, that's one of the most commonly observed rituals, um, it's not like the matzah will inspire you to do something else. You, by eating this matzah, are already starting uh, on that path. So that's the first piece. And I think the second, which probably Naomi is best suited to speak about, is a more robust uh, educational component. Could sort of Orthodox Judaism make a rule, for example, that you could only eat matzah that was produced in a in a way that where the, the eating of it is going to go towards the purposes of the Seder as opposed to Bain Capital? Or, for example, maybe even more simply, could we say, you know, you can only eat fair trade horseradish or whatever, you know, like meaning that it would almost be illegal to have the foods that are there to reenact our history of slavery. It would be it would be a violation in, if those foods were actually produced in a way that contributed to the very problems that the Seder is there to make us commit to, to ending. I do think there's already a mitzvah on the books which says, like, we won't eat chocolate or coffee or other things that are procured by slaves, and we'll be those awkward people right, at a part of like, would you like this candy bar? And we'll be like, no, thank you. Like, are you sure? And like this recently happened to me at a Jewish board meeting, and I'm like, no, it was produced by slaves, and I, I am religiously forbidden from eating your candy bar. And someone looked at me, that's an awkward comment, um, and was like, really? And I was like, yeah. And they're like, oh. Um, so I think the mitzvah, you can't go back to Egypt. It's one of the 613 commandments in the formal counting of commandments that Orthodox Jews and others regularly engage in. Um, so what does it mean? Uh, Jews lived in Egypt, Jews vacationed to Egypt, who observed that rule, not just Jews, but Jews who observed that rule do that. And so it probably doesn't mean you can't spend some time in Cairo. But what it for sure means is that we should be working as a mitzvah to remove ourselves from the uh, institutions and systems of slavery. So yes, I think it's already on the books. I think Passover is really so as much as i agree with the frustrations about passover seders i think passover is very well set up to take an idea like the passover writ large like the society of passover doers um, that are located all over the place like it's very geared towards ah cool idea i'm gonna now implement that in a Seder. There's tons and tons of people who actually do go off book, for lack of a better term, um, or more frequently, like many book, you know, have four different Haggadot that are there and you use this one for this thing and that thing for that thing. Um, there's this whole culture where it's almost intuitive at this point. We, we trace it a little bit back to the Freedom Seder with Arthur Waskow on one episode. Um, 
it's almost intuitive to people that, ah, of course, somebody would do an interesting Passover thing and then we talk about it at our Seder. I say that because I'm really interested in what you're doing both in and of itself and as a model for how we do Jewish ritual, how we do Jewish holiday observing. Um, And I bring up that Passover is well-suited because I think that if we tried to do something like this for a bunch of other holidays or other rituals, it would be way harder. And I'm not saying that to say we shouldn't do it. I'm saying it for the opposite. I'm saying like we should be asking, okay, what is Purim for? What is Hanukkah for? What is Tu B'Shvat, the New Year of the Trees for? What like what are these for? What would be the kind of effort like mitzvah matzahs for that? And how would we implement it? And I think what we would find in asking those questions is like, whoa, whoa, we are far from having the structures in place where like a bunch of grassroots people in their own homes could immediately do those. Th- like Passover, we have a, we don't talk about it as like a grassroots movements of, of Jews rebelling against authority. Like, but that's what it is. Like a bunch of Jews at certain points decided this should happen at home, separate from synagogues. We Everybody should do it with their own pieces. Um, the Seder itself evolved drastically over time. It's powerful. And I guess so. I'm curious to you to go meta for a second, as we like to do on this podcast. Like what would something like this manifest as for other Jewish rituals? And how could we go about doing some of that work? One reason we decided that this project was viable was that Passover is the most widely observed Jewish ritual amongst Jews today, according to the most recent Pew studies. And we actually do kind of hope that this maybe serves as a bit of a research project to see what it is about the ritual of Passover that's so engaging that people keep coming back to it so that maybe that will shed some light as to how we could improve people's experience on other holidays. One of our gut instincts is that Passover is so powerful because it's done in the home. That means that as participants, you have to be engaged. It's done as a family unit. You can't really escape from the experience. You can't sit in the back row in a huge auditorium when the cantor does something up there that you're not interacting with. So we hope that you know adding extra meaning and value and punch to that experience will make it even more powerful and perhaps getting a more home-based or small group-based sort of experience, or maybe a more empowering experience where it's hands-on and you feel actively engaged will help Jews and others involved in rituals to gain more meaning from them. It does seem that every Jewish holiday should go through a ritual redesign with the principles of people that make good rituals. I know you've had some of them on this show in the past and sort of thinking about what are the meaningful rituals. I think about Sukkot as um, an easy sort of second go-to because it is also a home-based thing and it's about letting go of material possession and going out from security into nature, all themes that are highly resonant now, except that Sukkot is not widely observed in the same way that Passover is, but it has some of the same strengths. And actually, it might be more mission aligned with certain needs now about reconnecting to the environment and about materialism and the value of things uh, and what that means for our ego and identities versus ultimately destroying us that are really crucial right now. Um, So I don't know if we're running to do it. If we had unlimited resources and time, we might. Um, But I think Sukkot is Right. That's the next place I would want to go just on a personal level because of its resonance with issues of modern import uh, to all people. 
so, so, but I would like to jump in a little bit to to talk about something else that that you've been doing, Barry, which is kosher supervision in the area that you live in, Providence, in a way that's I think somewhat different from how kosher supervision is usually conducted. And it would be great if you could talk about that a little bit, especially in reference to what you were talking about other redesigns. You know, because I'm interested in particular about how can it possibly be that a chocolate bar that was produced through human trafficking could possibly be kosher, right? How could that get a kosher certification? So where that leads me, you know, as somebody who's not orthodox is to say, this thing is completely messed up, right? Because the the way that something is kosher is based on whether it has certain ingredients or, or whatever that have very much to do with the ingredients. But but whether it was produced through human trafficking or how the animals were treated or how the workers were treated, that's kind of a nice add-on. And it's interesting to, you know, there are other organizations like Uri Litzedek, which has a certification that, that adds on that if the workers were, you know, that the workers need to be treated well and the animals need to be treated well, and then you get like an extra certification you know, why can't we say, like, first of all, nothing can be kosher if it was produced in an exploitative way. And I guess number two is like, you know, how do we think about what if the world is such, right? And I guess in a way, this was the matzo world until you came along. What if the world is such that the product that you're trying to get does not exist with a kosher certification other than products that were produced in an exploitative or overly profit-driven manner or whatever. And could we say something like, in that situation, it might be better to have something that's not certified kosher, but that was produced in a more proper way? You know, I mean, can you help us think about some of those things, I guess? There are different ways to view kosher in my mind. There's traditional kosher, and there are different gradations of traditional kosher, but basically it's a certified with the food products involved uh, meet dietary ritual requirements. Note, we've decided as a community, because they didn't always exist, that we're going to need third-party verification of the ingredients in foods, but not third-party verification about other mitzvot or commandments. There are commandments on the books that you cannot oppress workers. Those exist and are black-letter Jewish law, and many of them are more strict than rabbinic laws that we have third-party verification for. So we've actually made a choice about certification and verification, which may or may not be aligned with our values. There's kosher plus, and kosher plus can go in a good way from my perspective or a bad way. A bad way would be there was a restaurant, I think, in Brooklyn, and they had a, I think, a lesbian comic perform there, and the certification threatened to remove or pull its certification from that kosher restaurant until there was such a backlash of upset that they ultimately backed down. But that would be a version of Kosher Plus. And we could be doing what we view as the good version of Kosher Plus, not that version, right? But we're going to like to you know, make sure that um, the, the produce was made in a way that doesn't use pesticides and that the workers are treated well and paid a fair wage and all of that. I actually think there's something even bigger and better to do than a good version of Kosher Plus, which is what Lighthouse Kosher is doing. And note, Lighthouse Kosher is the certification on our matzah. So certifying our own matzah with our own certification is to say kosher for all. And this is Judaism as a world religion, right? And this hits at one of the Passover ideas, which is the thing that's most moving to me as an Orthodox rabbi is the strict regime of rules and laws that say you may not eat that food even if you're tempted. And 
etc. There's like a, a rule, and it's not just a rule in my head. It's like a socially enforced rule. Everyone eats every day, and so many of our broad global problems, be they problems of human trafficking, problems of environmental catastrophe, we're not changing the climate. We're demolishing the climate. Food is one of the leading causes, ultimately, if you go through the list of of, of carbon, of methane um, being emitted into the environment, um, to take food and say, we all need kosher. So this is Judaism as a world religion. Like we have a good idea and we're not trying to proselytize per se, but like, yeah, this is a really good idea. And if it's so good, it's not only the Jews who should want to do it. Like everyone who cares and wants to be a good person should want to do some version of this thing. Interestingly, um, we've only had a few Orthodox rabbis on the show, and one of the other ones, Manish Tana, in his book, wrote all about like rethinking kashrut supervision. So, like, <laughs> to Orthodox rabbis out there who want to come on, like, that's a that's a good way to <laughs> to make an appearance. Um, so, I'm not, I'm decidedly not an Orthodox Jew, but I am also decidedly like a Jew. And so, when I think about something that I would identify as one of my favorite things about Jewish tradition, broadly defined ambiguously. It would be, and I've realized this through my opposition to some voices from from the Christian world, not all, but some, you'll often hear, it's not about what goes in your mouth, it's about what comes out of it. Which on one level is a nice message, right? Like, I do care very deeply um, about the words I say, and I think that as a society, we often think that words aren't substance, um, that words just sort of float out and we don't think about the consequences. I do want people to take speech very seriously, but the framework of it's therefore not about what goes in your mouth, meaning, you know, what you eat is something I just kind of recoil against because the idea that you have to choose, it, it feels so strange to me because what a project like Mitzvah Matzahs, but also like the entire framework of mindful eating, and I'm saying mindful eating more than just like kashru, like the entire framework of thinking about what you put in your mouth is a values-driven project. Like it, it's not just about like this, I don't know, biological need to put things in your mouth that you then process. Like it is, it is something that must and should tie to our values. And I think that kashrut, much as I would change a lot about it, a lot about it, and my own observance of kashrut occasionally like totally flips it. Um, I don't drink kosher wine. I do drink non-kosher wine. I talked about that on the podcast before. I just love to hear from you a little, like from a from a universal religious framework or from a Jewish framework. What is there to gain from this project of being so thoughtful about what we eat? Because mitzvah matzahs is a manifestation of that project, but I think that it's potentially a call to those Jews who don't have a kashrut practice, and I'm not really calling for kashrut, I'm calling for mindful eating, um, to have a kind of thoughtful orientation to what we eat and what we don't. Kashrut does mean fit. That's what kosher means. It means fit to eat. That's something we should all be asking. Uh, what is fit to eat? For a long time, We've thought about food as fuel, I think, in the West broadly. That's kind of the way it is. And it's about diet and it's about calories and it's about nutrients, but it's sort of like fuel. Eating matzah is not an act of eating. It's an act of education. And I think that's what matzah is trying to show. You have to, when, when you eat matzah at the Seder, the traditional instruction is to uncover the matzah. And it's described as lechem she'onim alav dvarim harbe, a bread that offers solutions to many problems. 
And so there's something about eating matzah that is supposed to gastronomically change the way you are. I think we don't even realize how central food is socially and culturally. I mean, is there ever a situation where you meet up with a friend or invite somebody over and don't have something to eat or drink? It seems pretty central to just how humans interact. So um, I think that's part of what Lighthouse Kosher is striving to do is create community and create connection between where food comes from and the people who eat it. On another note, I also was thinking as you were making your remarks, Lex, that uh, one of our hashtags that we like to use with our matzah project is hashtag put your matzah where your mouth is, because the whole thought is all Seder long, you're talking about slavery and freedom, you know, do that with your matzah, make your matzah something of action. You know, what we say should align with what we eat. There's another important thing to say about food here, which is that most of us procure most of our food in a commercial context, um, which is really different than how it was for most of human history, where you didn't go to a store and buy food that someone else grew or raised or prepared. Uh, and in that sense, food is distanced from the people that created in, inherently in the modern context. There's a great uh, TED talk about a guy who decided that, I forget his name, but he, he wanted to figure out everyone involved in preparing his morning cup of coffee. And so he went to figure out all the different people from the truck driver to the guy who watered the coffee beans, the coffee bean grower, the advertiser, the label maker, the person who made the box. The, and um, actually, it's funny that we're more in, interconnected in the way we make food, not less, right? We don't make food alone, but we make food together, which is part of how it's become so affordable and how we've dealt with global hunger. So that's a good thing. But because of the commercial means of production, it's actually hard to have people know each other or tell stories. Our kosher company supervises a chimichurri sauce uh, from a guy named Alberto who makes it. And when we were you know, like inspecting the factory to make sure all the ingredients were kosher, uh, one question we asked, why do you make this sauce. And he went on and on about his family from Argentina and the good times they had as a family using this sauce recipe. When you see his chimichurri sauce in the aisle of Whole Foods or Eastside Marketplace here in Providence, you would never know that Alberto is engaging in an act of love to other people um, through making this chimichurri sauce. How do we make food so you see the people behind the food and the animals, but how do you see what's in the food in a way that isn't just fuel for you that you buy? You've made some references to Providence, Rhode Island, where we live. And I, I want to, I mean, you know, I'm selfish. I love the place I live. I want to talk about it. When people, uh, well, actually, people don't really ask me this. I'd like them to ask it more. But when people ask me about living in Providence as a Jew or about Providence's Jewish community, um, I, I I try to distill it, and I spend a lot of time thinking about this as like a floater between many different Jewish institutions here in town. My proudest moment that I can think of, or one of my proudest moments of being a Jew in Providence, took place at the Stop and Shop down the road from me when it was like the fifth day of Passover this past year. The workers at Stop and Shop were on strike um, for a number of days, starting like one or two before Passover. Um, or maybe even like a week before Passover. And that strike was all about negotiating fair wages for them and making sure that they were treated fairly, all of these important things. 
so I supported this strike in solidarity and I almost always shop at this stop and shop. And I didn't for a while. And then on the fifth day of Passover, I'm making up the, one of the days of Passover, the strike ended and I went to the store to buy stuff for Passover because literally I didn't have any. Like I had been home for the first few days and so I uh, in Milwaukee and so I didn't have anything here. And I went there. There was like a mob scene in the in the kosher uh, pa- for Passover aisle of Stop and Shop where like all of the Jew- there were like 25 Jews of Providence uh, on like a Tuesday at three o'clock p.m. in this aisle just like grabbing everything in mayhem because all of us had been supporting that strike. And all of us, when it ended, went to the store. That's the putting putting the matzah, putting the money where your mouth is. Like that and and so it's not, you know, lighting candles together at a beautiful communal celebration in Providence. It's not um which I've done all these things. It's it's not having hundreds of folks show up for high holiday services. It's not any of those pieces. But I think that that's where Judaism lives, is sometimes in the aisle of the grocery store at Stop and Shop. And so I guess my call, this is less a question than just like a Lex rant, um, but like what so deeply excites me about what you're doing is, I think, the implicit message that Judaism, holiness, mitzvahs live at your dinner table and at the grocery store as much or even occasionally more than that it lives in the synagogue building, et cetera. If what we practice in our rituals doesn't carry over to how we behave in life, then what on earth is the purpose? Um, that's why we're doing what we do. It's to encourage people to experience something when they practice a ritual or when they sit down to eat a meal. And hopefully that experience moves them or encourages them along a, a trajectory of mindful behavior. I was excited to write a sort of tshuva, a formal legal piece that I sent it to my synagogue saying, you may not stop, shop at stop and shop uh, before Passover uh, and sort of outline in a very legal way why Judaism supports organized labor and classically has in rabbinic law. And, you know, if you buy this food, it's forbidden and people shouldn't eat from your Seder table. And actually even people who were uninclined to, you know, most people I would say in the community wanted to support the strikers, but even those that didn't sort of felt like, ah, the rabbi said I can't, can't do it. Um, I think that's sort of like one of the, the powers here, but I, I think that's sort of the principle that's animating linking matzah as an eating experience with an educational sort of Seder moment where we talk to each other and engage. And this is an interesting way to try and bridge all of that. Before we close, I I think it would just be a little helpful because as I'm reflecting on our next series of episodes in this series leading up to Passover, as usual, I think we're focused almost exclusively, not exclusively, but almost exclusively on the Seder. So we're talking to you about matzah and we're talking largely about the Seder and we're talking to some people about Haggadahs. And it occurs to me as we're talking that the Seder is really just the first day of an eight-day holiday, or, the, or I guess it's the first two days of an eight-day holiday, or in Israel, the first day of a seven-day holiday, or in Reform Judaism, it's the first day of a seven-day holiday, whatever. It's, a, we have, uh, it's, it's about a week left afterwards. And some people keep kosher for Passover in the sense that they don't eat any leaven at all. Some people keep kosher for Passover in the sense that they continue to eat matzah instead of bread, but but that's that's what they define as kosher for Passover. And some people don't do anything at all, really, for the rest of the time. 
And I guess my concern is that, you know, none of those, that, that we've got a, as big of a problem with the rest of Passover as we do with the Seder. I think, like Naomi said earlier, like my in- instinct is to say that the reason why Passover is the most observed holiday is because it's kind of like the Jewish Thanksgiving. And I'm not sure it's right to say that we like getting together with family, but we all understand that once a year to get together with family is a thing that makes a lot of sense and that we should do. What about the rest of Passover? And I'm just wondering if towards the end of our episode, you have some reflections on how, again, I guess I go back to what is Judaism for or how is Judaism supposed to work such that something happens at the Seder. Ideally, what happens at the Seder made you experience that intense week in a certain way. And that ideally what happened in that intense week in a certain way makes you walk into the rest of the year in a certain way that you that wouldn't have that that your year will be different because of this experience and i guess my feeling and here i'm getting a little judgy i guess but my feeling is that if you don't walk into the year different from the way that you came into passover then passover didn't work and if it's consistently not working for people and i think that's the case what can we do to make the whole experience of passover more powerful than it seems to be currently even for the observant the, the more observant among us You're absolutely right, Dan, that the point of an intense one-time experience is obviously to have that affect the rest of the year. And this is even in the Haggadah, right? There's this section about the Shema, um, and how do you know you say the Shema? And it's like, why are they talking about the Shema? That's something you do every day. What does that have to do with Passover? But obviously, there's something about this one-time experience, Passover, that's supposed to have an effect, like, constantly. I think it's about at least two things that are coming to me now. One of them is collective action, and another one is empathy, right? So collective action says none of us alone are going to become the superhero that's going to stop uh, human trafficking, but you're not free to resist doing something. And actually, if we all did little things, we'd solve a lot of problems. Um, That's one. And the other is empathy, which is tricky. You know, there's a lot of studies now about empathy and how building empathy for people in your in-group can actually have a boomerang effect of having less empathy for people who aren't in your in-group. And so one of the parts that you're mentioning, Dan, about like, does Passover work, is that Passover is pretty complex, which is one of the things that matzah, I think, is sort of makes it more incredible, is that it's a visceral experience. What I mean is like, you taste it, you digest it, you can remember the taste. And I think that sits in a different way throughout the year. I think that's the hope, at least. Um, one thing that I've read recently that builds empathy for people, and I think that's probably what Passover is about. Uh, there's been a lot of studies that reading fiction helps to uh, imagine what the lives of other people who don't share your set of circumstances are like. And I think that's really like the job of Passover. We're not slaves now, but how can we imagine what it's like to be people who don't share what our set of identifiers, right? Like Jewish, living in Providence, relatively well off, whatever the identifiers here are, male, straight, I have like many identifiers. Um, But what about someone that shares none of those things? How can I really learn to free myself from my own conceptions or notice them in order to sort of absolve someone else's, absorb someone else's narrative? Um, so I don't know. This is a good call, Dan. What other things should we be doing on Passover? And I, I think like in my mind now, like Passover, the rest of it should be set aside for like fiction reading, maybe. Like, are there other practices, either redesigns or things we can do to deepen the deep dive so that it works better? 
by the way, listeners, hello, breaking the fourth wall. Um, not rhetorical. Send us your actual ideas for the answer to various question because we want to hear them and we'll feature them on our website, all that stuff. Um, and we have our Passover Unbound thing on the website. Okay, plug over. Um, so I have, I think, a, close, a, a closing-esque kind of question, um, which relates to one of my own gripes with how many folks I I interact with tend to observe Passover, which is... When I talk to people, especially like outside of rabbis or people that are like really sort of in it Jewishly on a every hour, every day basis, when I ask them, you know, sort of what are the rituals of Passover? I think most of them, and I'm being careful about my language, I think most of them say, well, it's a holiday where you don't eat bread before they say it's a holiday where you do eat matzah. And and honestly, I think part of this plays out in when when I go to the remaining, whether it's six or seven days after the Seder, um, I eat matzah every day. I very consciously eat matzah every day because I find that like, sure, I can refrain from bread. I can eat meals that like don't have bread in them. But like turns out a lot of the kosher for Passover substitutes and like whatever actually are really good good and taste like normal food tastes. So if I'm not eating matzah, the meat, like I'll forget that I'm doing anything Passover-y. I'm just eating food. And so for me, it's very important to eat matzah as frequently as I can to actually hammer home that this is a holiday about not just not doing a set of things, not eating a set of things, but doing a set of things. And like metaphorically, it's for me trying to stand for my active commitment, not just like passive commitment to the values of overturning slavery, of freedom, of all the things that come up in Passover. So I guess just as a close, you gave us a hint of this with reading fiction, but like, what should we do on Passover? There's like a hundred some, uh, what is it? Seven times 24 or eight times 24 hours plus one or two on the end. Um, for Passover, what would you leave us with as our charge, starting with, you know, eat mitzvah matzahs and support the fight against human trafficking? But what would the the B, C, and D be? I think the order of the holiday is suggestive. And this gets to your point, Lex. Um, first, I want to note a commonality, the Vilna Gaon, I don't know if you've been compared to the Vilna Gaon before, but I'm proud. No, but my family was in Vilna, so ah. cool. <laughs> Great. My family claims descent from the Vilna Gaon, but I've also heard that he didn't have kids, so I'm not really sure. <laughs> Is that a contradiction? Um, the Vilna Gaon felt that it's called Chag HaMatzot for a reason. The fest Chag HaMatzot means the festival of matzahs. And so he actually felt that it is a mitzvah, a commandment to eat matzah each day of Passover. It's an idiosyncratic position of his that you have to do it each day. Um, but since what you said would be so good for our sales, Lex, I'm going to say that people should eat matzah every day, not just on Passover. And if they're going to do that, they should make it mitzvah matzahs or, or they might bake their own matzah. Um, because that's something that drives a new connection and thought process to food, which begins to break down some of the systems of relying on others, begin to empower people in a certain way about their own ritual and Judaism, which might have a good effects uh, in their lives. And then there's a final day or two holiday in the traditional system. 
So it would be interesting also to have some kind of closing reflection and say, okay, what are my takeaways from the year? And to treat that last holiday day, even if you're, whether you're observing it traditionally or you don't observe it at all, right? But either way, to kind of make the mental note or written note and say, what's going to be different? Uh, to close, to really have a closing. Like you close a meeting and say, like, what are my takeaways and how will I measure success and when will they be done by, right? Like to do those things. So I think that in order to understand Passover as a process and an extended holiday, we need to think about how it might have looked when it evolved um, and over the ages to understand where we are today and what it could look like today in modern times for us. So for most of history, people didn't have refrigerators or supermarkets. Um, Barry and I were actually blessed to go on a trip to Nigeria. Um, where we experienced this lifestyle firsthand. And it was really eye-opening to understand what most people have lived like in the world for most of human history. And that's that people have to make their food every day and whatever they make, they eat because there is no refrigerator and it will go bad. When people would have been celebrating Passover, they didn't stock up on matzah or have it in the pantry and they didn't bake it before Passover and let it you know, last for seven or eight days. They were making matzah to eat matzah for all the duration of Passover, you know, routinely every day or two. So rather than eating the way you normally eat, people were eating differently. They were making their food in a hurried way, a less enjoyable way. So I don't think I would say that we should have less enjoyable food necessarily for Passover, but perhaps something about our eating should be more hurried or less less fancy so that we can understand what it's like to simplify our eating experience and maybe have more time to focus on other things or understand how lucky we are to eat the way we normally eat during the rest of the year. Um, the other thing that came to mind is that in more recent times, there's been this huge focus in Jewish culture about cleaning for Passover. I think it's in some ways bigger than the holiday itself, um, whether that's spring cleaning or a religious experience of looking for leavened bread or chametz everywhere. Um, however it is, people clean for Passover as a central part of the holiday. Um, and I think that we could reframe that and clean our souls for Passover more than we clean our houses. Um, that sort of preparation might be a better Passover cleaning. And then the eating experience throughout Passover might help us spend more time thinking about that as we eat. Before we go, can you just let listeners know if they want to get mitzvah matzahs, how they go about that? Just go to our website at mitzvahmatzahs.org. Um, that's M-I-T-Z-V-A-H-M-A-T-Z-O-S.org. Um, and there is an order form right there. Uh, this year, mitzvah matzahs will be available through buying clubs um, from Philadelphia through Maine in the northeast region of the country. Um, we're hoping to expand shortly in future years to the rest of the country. So you can order through our website and uh, feel free to email us if you want information about where a buying club near you might be. I would also add that if you're running a group seder, a communal seder, a hillel, a synagogue, anywhere, a nursing home, and you want to really make that communal seder different this year, bulk purchases are a great way to support the cause even more. Thank you so much to both of you for joining us. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank, Thank you, you both so much.
And thank you as well to all of you out there listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. We hope that you'll join us for a bunch more episodes looking specifically, squarely, completely at Passover over these next few weeks in the lead up to Passover. So we hope that you will be on that journey with us and that this was a good kickstart to it. Speaking of kickstarts, once again, huge thank you to everyone who made our Kickstarter campaign a huge success. We never expected to raise as much as we did, but it's really going to go a long way and make this book project as successful as it possibly can be. So thank you. With that, we are going to close out this conversation, and we're going to do it in the same way that we always do, by encouraging you to be in touch with us. And there are a wide variety of ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, you can go to our Twitter feed at at Judaism Unbound. Third, you can go to our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And last but not least, you can hit us up via email at dan at JudaismUnbound.com or lex at JudaismUnbound.com. So thank you so much for listening to this episode. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound. <laughs>